1 John chapter 4, we're going to begin at verse 20, Exodus chapter 5 and Matthew 23. Those are our side trips. How many of you were here, happened to be here on Thursday, this last Thursday? We talked about perfect love. And I asked the question, I'll ask it again. How many of you feel like you have love perfected? Nobody, huh? Okay. I had mentioned that I'm really good at loving myself. People who think like me and act like me and do the things I want them to do. But perfected love, love that's perfect. You're going to see that word, verse 12, verse 17, verse 18. We looked at it on Thursday. This idea that love is perfected in us, he says. Now, if he means perfect, like we think of perfect, like flawless, then I don't know about you, but I kind of want to just close the book. And All right, there's no chance I'm going to live up to that. But we learned on Thursday that perfect can also mean mature, uh, come to full fruition. A great word would be ripe. Perfect love is love that is ripe. The Bible says that love is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Matter of fact, you could make a very good case that in Galatians 5.22 where it says the fruit of the Spirit is, the very first word is love. I almost want to put a colon after that, and you could because we don't know what the, the grammar is, but that basically when you look at all of the rest of the, the fruits of the Spirit, they're all a derivative, some kind of the fruit of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The, the fruit of the Spirit, when you really boil it down, is love. And what John is saying in verses 12, 17, and 18, lest you be discouraged and say, I could never do that. When he's talking about perfect love, he's talking about a mature, a ripe love. Love that does something for someone. Love that is um, actually shown in a certain way. Let me put it this way. How do we know that love is mature or ripe? Well, it's not just a warm, fuzzy thought or an idea, right? It's not just some nice words. The way that you notice when love is bloomed, when it's ripe, is when it becomes an action, right? In the words of that great theologian, Roger Hammerstein, or Oscar Hammerstein, I don't remember which. A bell's not a bell till you ring it. A song's not a song till you sing it. Love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love, mature, ripe love, till you give it away. Right? Make sense? The way that you know it's mature and ripe is when it manifests itself, when it shows up in action. Now, maybe that, that quote was, um, was too, uh, what's the word, Broadway for you. I don't know if you, this is more my speed. If you ever watched the, the talent show, Showtime at the Apollo, they say it much more succinctly. When the host brings out a guest, he goes, show your love, show your love, right? That's the title of the message, show your love. Love isn't really love. It's not really mature. It's not ripe until you find a way to show it. Love that is mature, ripe, perfect, is shown in deeds. And we've seen that throughout this last chapter. Who made the first move? God showed his love. Look at verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. And this is how he showed that love. Look back at verse 9. 
In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's payment. He sent his son to be the very payment for our sins. Beloved, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God has shown you, Christian, tremendous love. Even if you're a non-Christian, God has shown you tremendous love, but you don't see it yet. God has shown us tremendous love. The question is today, how do we return the favor? How do we show him our love? I've got a couple of stories for you. Kids who were trying to show love. <clears throat> a kindergartner was practicing spelling with magnetic letters on the refrigerator. He got cat, C-A-T, dog, dad, and mom. All of those had been proudly displayed for everybody to see. Well, one morning... While he's getting ready for the day, he bounds into the room with his arms outstretched. And in his hands were three letters, G, O, and D. Look what I spelled, Mom. She's thinking, awesome. He's showing his love. That's wonderful. She said, now, now go put him on the refrigerator so that Dad can see when he gets home. Mom happily thought that her um, religious education for her son was paying off. Then a little voice calls from the kitchen. Mom, how do you spell Zilla? God, Zilla. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. There's one more. Sorry. There's one more. <clears throat> it's at the end of the school year. Kindergarten teacher uh, was receiving gifts from her pupils, right? They all come with their gifts. The first boy was the florist's son. He had a gift and she shook it. It's a florist's son. She holds it over her head. And she goes, I bet I know what this is. Flowers. How did you guess? It's just a wild guess. Next pupil comes up, the candy shop's owner's daughter, and the teacher knows that, and she shakes the gift over her head. She said, I bet I can guess what this is. It's a box of sweets. <gasps> That's wonderful. How did you guess that? It's just a wild guess. Well, the next gift was from the son of the liquor store owner. <laughs> teacher held the package over her head, but it was leaking. So she touched a drop of the, the liquid with her finger. Is it wine? No, said the boy. Well, the teacher repeated the process. She took a little bit more. Is it champagne? No. The boy said, it's a puppy. <laughs> Sorry. You're like, show, show. You guys are telling, telling me, show us your love. Quit that. Look, God has already shown his love for you, right? And you want to show him your love. If you're a Christian, that's what you want to do. You just want to return the love to him. How do you do that? Well, in verse 20, I think we see the first way that you can show your love for the father is by loving his kids. Look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Okay, don't raise your hand, but if you're honest, do you ever feel like, I love God, it's just those stinking Christians I hate? <laughs> or, or maybe more accurately, I love God and most Christians, but that guy? Come on. Well, we saw it on Thursday. John is not one. The writer here, 
He's not one to mince words. You were to go to John and, and say something like that. You were to say, look, John, I, I really love God, but this guy, I can't stand him. He would not say to you, well, I'm going to pray for you, brother, because I know that's got to be difficult. He would not say to you, hey, tell me why you don't love, love your brother. He would say to you, liar. I love God, but I just really don't like, like this, this brother of mine. You just say, liar, next. He says, if someone says, I love God, and he says, brother, he is a liar. He says, for who does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? According to the Bible, the person that you're thinking about right now that's so difficult to love, that person is carrying God around inside. And you say, yes, but he's so well hidden I mean, the guy I'm thinking of, the person I'm thinking of, God is so well hidden under layers and layers of flesh and attitude and selfishness. John says, nevertheless, God is in there. And if you can't love God inside your brother whom you can see, John says, I don't buy that you love God whom you can't see. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Key word there in verse 21 is commandment. It's a rather strong word. Not suggestion, not idea, not a good idea. This is a commandment. It actually came from Jesus' lips. John 13, 34. He said on the night of his betrayal, by the way, right after he washed 24 stinky feet, two of whom's, whose were Judas. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He had just shown love. Right? We are commanded to love our brothers. He says, matter of fact, by this all will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. We are commanded to love one another. And sometimes I think that's a good thing. I mean, honestly, aren't there some if you weren't commanded, you might try to figure out a way to not. Sometimes the only thing that keeps you pursuing love with a person, a brother or a sister, is the fact that your king commands it. Don't point at one another at this point. It's not optional. It's not. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Verse 21 this commandment we, we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now, are there any lawyers in the room or you maybe thought about being a lawyer at one point? Nobody will admit it. <laughs> Same as the first, first service, but then somebody came after me and admitted it. I'm kind of like that. I kind of think like a lawyer sometimes. Um, I don't know if, if, if you're looking at this and you think you see a loophole, then... You're like me. Like at first, you're like, hmm. Verse 21, this commandment we have from him that we, he who loves God must love his brother also. If you're looking for a loophole, maybe you're thinking this. Well, that guy, the guy that I don't like, I don't think he's a brother. I mean, he's not even a Republican. How could he be a Christian? 
I mean, they, they send their kids to public school. I mean, how could they be Christian? I mean, he's got a tattoo. I'm exempted. I don't have to love him. He's not a brother. I mean, the clothes that she wears, she calls herself a Christian. Look, if you are the loophole seeking type, look at chapter five, verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You see it? Doesn't say whoever raises their kids like I do is my kid or is my brother, my sister. Whoever dresses like I do, whoever thinks like I do, whoever votes like I do, doesn't say that. What does it say? Your brothers and sisters are whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So that's who you're expected to love, to show your love to. That is the context of this verse, right? We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to subcategorize Christians that we're going to show love to. Verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, the context here truly, because it continues on, is loving our brothers and sisters, right? But there's a side note that I want to make sure that we mention here. And it happens to be just the most important side note of all of history. Where it says, born of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, right? John chapter 3. Says you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot get to heaven unless you are born of God. Doesn't matter that you were born the first time to this highly religious uh, society. Doesn't, Doesn't matter that you've done all of these great and wonderful things that you think you've done for God. You don't get to heaven unless you are born again. And Nicodemus, John chapter 3 says, well, how does that work? I mean, I'm like 5'8", 190 pounds. Am I supposed to go back to my mom's womb? That's not going to work for either one of us. Jesus said, look, you need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be a brand new creation. You need a brand new beginning. You need a fresh start. You need to feel like you are Helpless and infant apart from God. You need to understand that you have no hope of survival apart from God. Now, John says you must be born again. I think at that point, John chapter 3, later on, it's a good story for, for Nicodemus. But at this point, I think Nicodemus walks away scratching his head. But here, First John chapter 5, verse 1, this should be very clear to anybody in the room who's willing to accept it. It's very plain how you can be born again right here. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Very simple. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God. Now, probably only needs one clarification. The word believes there is doesn't mean just simply intellectual belief. In in the Greek, it means to trust in, to cling to. You you don't become born again and have this radical new beginning, right? By just simply saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, pass the mashed potatoes, right? It's not just a, a word or a phrase or an intellectual belief. Here's a way that I can illustrate it, I think. The difference between intellectual belief 
and saving belief. Let's say you're trapped in a burning building. I say to you, jump, I will catch you. You can say with, in your mind or you can even say with your lips, I believe you. I believe that you'll catch me. But are you saved yet? To be saved, you have to jump. You actually have to trust me, right? You have to go from just believing my words to believing in me. That's what it is when we say we believe. If if you're speaking to a real Christian, when they say, I believe in Jesus, they don't just mean I believe that he existed and all of the, the facts about him. They mean, no, I'm trusting Jesus with my very life. To be born again, you must believe, trust, rely upon Jesus the Christ. Now, notice, very important, I think, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Notice it does not say is a Christ. Those who are born again do not just believe that he is a Christ, one way to the Father. No, he is the Christ, the Savior. And I'm sure you've heard, Right, that all roads lead to God. And that is so wicked in, in one sense, but it's actually true in another sense. All roads do lead to God. But all of them but one lead to him as your judge. One of them leads to him as your father. That's Jesus. First John chapter five, verse one says that whoever trusts in, they rely upon Jesus. As the only Christ is born of God. Now, like I said, that was a side note. Happens to be the most important side note you'll ever hear. But the context is that there are no loopholes here in whom we love, right? So how do we go about showing our love? Well, the way to show your love to the Father is to love his kids. And I think we've established who are those kids, Republicans, no, homeschoolers, not necessarily people who think and act and vote and talk like we do. No. First one, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And look, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. If you are trusting Jesus as your savior, this point is that I am stuck loving you. I mean, I am privileged to love you. That was a joke. Thank you. Thank you. It's really sad when you have to point them out. If if I love God, I will love his kids. This is so easy to illustrate on a human level. This will totally make sense to you if you haven't caught it already. How many of you are parents? Okay. Let's say someone comes up to you and they say to you, can I tell you how much you bless me? I just love you. All the work that you do for me and all of the the ways that you show your love to the church. You're just awesome. But man, I hate that kid of yours. (laughs) He's a rude, selfish little brat. And ugly. Ooh. Are you going to be enjoying fellowship with that person on an ongoing basis? So God is a heavenly father, right? So if you love him, you're going to love his kids. 
even the ones that are difficult to love. Because that person is carrying God around inside them. Verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Look, I gave you the negative example. Let me give you the positive example. And I've used this before, but so many of you guys watch out for my two boys, Noah and Isaac, right? Noah, nine years old, if you're new, um, has autism. He, he speaks in two words phrases. Um, the world is different for him than for us, right? So many of you show your love for me and for Lisa, him who is who has begotten for him who has was is begotten. You show that by taking care of keeping an eye out on Noah, for instance, making sure he doesn't run out into traffic. It's like that sounds funny, but no, that's literal. Keeping an eye on him while I'm praying with someone or keeping him from stealing food that he's allergic to. Now, he doesn't see that as love. <laughs> but you show your love all the more for me by taking that difficult task, right? Look, how you show your love for the father is by loving on his kids. If you want to bless the father, serve his kids, especially the ones that are never going to be able to pay you back. Noah's a great example of that, right? Chances are you're not going to get, at least in tangible ways, him paying you back. So think about that difficult person that's hard to love. If you want to bless the father, you bless that that kid. You serve that kid. And if they can't pay you back, it's all the more showing how much you love it. We show our love to the Father by loving His kids. Now look at verse 2. This is kind of neat. It kind of spins it around on its head. We show our love for the Father by loving His kids, but you can also show your love to His kids, the family of God, by loving the Father. Look at that, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. Interesting. Verse 1 says... Show your love, show your love for the Father by loving each other. But verse 2 says, show your love for each other by loving the Father. Anyone here grow up in a big household? Lots of siblings. You're like, you don't know how, how to gauge that, right? Okay. Um, anybody here have a pretty big, lots of siblings? Okay, there you go. This, this phenomenon might be familiar to you. Let me paint this picture for you. Um, let's say you've got eight kids, okay? Okay, let's say you've got 12 kids. That'll be fun. So you've got 12 kids, and everybody is obedient. It's like fun. It's like, okay, it's impossible, but it's, it's a blessing when everybody's being obedient to the Father, right? But let's say you just take one of those kids who's completely rebellious. You, out of 12 kids, you have 11 that are just being super obedient. But that 11th one is rebellious. He's not happy. And then when he's not happy, mama's not happy. And you know the rest. <laughs> mama's not happy. Ain't nobody happy. 
Verse 2, I think, is saying it's an invisible truth. It's one that we don't think very much of it, but it's this. Listen, our individual obedience or lack of, our rebellion or our submission has an impact on the dynamic of the household. Does that make sense? Again, you take one of those 12 kids, rebellion, it's like a war zone in the house. Here's my point. Maybe you think that you have a private sin. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm really only hurting myself and God forgives me. Well, you're right about a couple things. You are hurting yourself. And God will forgive you as you confess to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. First John chapter one, verse nine. But you're wrong about this. You're not just hurting yourself. Right? It's like a, a pebble in a pond right? that's got the ripples. Every sin, every single sin, every act of disobedience has a ripple effect. And it affects the body. And probably most of the time, we don't even really know how it's affecting us. Verse 2 says that you can show your love to the family of God that is your church, your own personal family, by loving God, by securing your relationship with him, right? Keeping that strong, by keeping his commandments. Um, Pastor David Guzik has a great illustration, I think. At least it worked for me. We'll see. Hopefully it will work for you. Imagine that, you're, that the church is like a, a big ocean liner and thousands and thousands of millions, let's say, of guests that are, that are on board. And every single one's got their own anchor. And you throw yours off. You're like, that ain't going to affect anything. And then I throw mine off. And a few other people throw theirs off. How long is it before we're not sure why? Because the engine's running. The, the captain's still at the helm. But we're just not going anywhere. Could it be that's going on within our church, within God's church at large? That because individually we are not walking in obedience, we're not fellowshipping with him, we're not loving the Father, that we are impacting the family. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Okay, so you show your love to the Father by loving his kids, right? You show your love to the family by loving the Father. And you show your love to the Father and the family, verse 3, by keeping his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. <clears throat> and his commandments are not burdensome. And some of you are thinking, I'm not sure about that. Commandments are not burdensome. You just told me I have to love so-and-so. You're thinking, that's no walk in the park, let me tell you. Well, the word burdensome there is uh, barus, and it means heavy in weight, severe, weighty, violent, cruel, unsparing. It says his commandments are not burdensome. Two, two pictures come to mind to me immediately when I read these these words. His commandments are not burdensome. You know, there's t probably more than this, but at least a couple choices that you can make besides the Lord to be your your master. You can choose the master of this world. Or you could choose religion. And both of those are incredibly 
cruel taskmasters. If you want to, you can turn with me in Matthew, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 5. Do you guys remember the children of Israel? They were slaves in Egypt. In the Old Testament, Egypt is a picture, a type, a picture of the world, right? And Pharaoh is a picture of the guy we've called the puppet master before, the enemy, the guy who's pulling all the strings in the world, right? So you remember when Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says he's the he's the ruler of Egypt. He's the the present ruler of Egypt. He sends word and he says, "Okay, so you want to go worship God? Well, I guess if you got time enough to worship, you got more time on your hands than I thought. We're not going to give you straw anymore. You're going to have to go find your own straw to uh, to provide for your own bricks. Verse 10. Exodus 5, and the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. I'm expecting the exact same output, but we're not going to provide for you the straw. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Look, here's my point. Maybe you're an unbeliever here this morning. And the reason that you're an unbeliever is because you think that Christianity is one big set of rules and regulations. One big set of things that are so hard for people to live up to. Have you spent any time, unbeliever, considering the taskmaster that you're already under? The Bible says that the world is a slave yard and this Satan is a cruel taskmaster. And he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And sometimes I think he enjoys killing and stealing and destroying as slowly and mercilessly as possible. Drug addiction. It's a cruel taskmaster. Take the life right out of you. Pornography will kill your marriage or your future marriage. It's a cruel taskmaster. Joe Foch is a pastor up in Calvary, Philly. He's a, he's a little snarky sometimes. I don't know if I should admit it, but I kind of admire that sometimes. <clears throat> Has a little bit of an attitude, but it makes the point really well. He gets a little bit sarcastic and he says, yeah, I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to be a Christian. I mean, give up the possibility of all these great things like liver damage, HIV, divorce, guilt, shame, fear. I don't get it. Yeah, that's just terrible. I wouldn't want to give those things up. And maybe you say, unbeliever, you say, uh, but if I surrender my life to Jesus, won't I just be trading one set of burdensome rules for another? No. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. If this is the first time you've ever heard this or noticed this, I'm excited for you. Matthew 23 If you hate the thought of keeping the rules and the regulations and you think that God is just waiting up there to to see if you mess up and that he has his long list of things that you have to do to satisfy to make him happy. 
I want you to see this. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Um, what he's talking about, the scribes and the Pharisees, these were the religious rulers of the day. Okay? The guys who made all of the rules. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now look. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Phylacteries were these boxes that showed how spiritual you were. So the bigger box you have, wow, that guy's really spiritual. They love the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogue, the greetings in the marketplaces, and they love to be called rabbi. Rabbi, he says these guys are all about the outward appearances, all about the rules that show how spiritual they are. And maybe you're an unbeliever here and you say, look, it's too hard to be a Christian. I think Jesus says, listen to me. That's exactly why you see me so livid here. Is that people are saying that they're making it look like it's hard to come to God. These guys are making it seem so hard, so burdensome. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look, Jesus is really mad here. This is probably the most scathing speech he gives. Look at Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anus and, and cumin and have neglected the, the waiter, weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Basically, he's talking about spices. He says, look, you guys will divide all your spices up. Nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. That's how important you think it is to do these things. He says, you, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. But look, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Here's the point. The Pharisees, the rulers, the guys who make up all the rules. They were working on the outside appearance. Jesus says it's so much easier than that. You say, I can't keep all the rules of Christianity. Jesus says to you, you're making the same mistake the Pharisees were. You're looking at the outside of the cup. Here's what I'm asking, Jesus says. Let me come on the inside. Let me clean the inside of the cup. The outside of the cup will take care of itself. The Pharisees had hundreds of laws about the most minuscule things. And a young man once asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest law? Jesus says, all of the, the laws and the commandments of God hang on, on this one, these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's quite simple, really. It's not about rules, regulations. It's about relationship. That's why verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Maybe... Maybe that's an application you need to make in your life today. Maybe you've been moping around, telling yourself that his commandments are burdensome. It says right here that they are not. Every, every single thing that he's asking you to do, that he's commanding you to do, is for your own good. Right? This is off note, but again, there's things that I expect my boys to do, and they have no idea why I'm expecting it. But do I make those rules because I can't wait for them to trip up? No, it's because I know 
what lies in the future. You have no idea what lies in your future. But God does. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Well, we're out of time here, but we're going to cover verse four and five next time in depth. But let me let me just kind of use them as a jumping off spot for for next time. I see verses four and five kind of as a pep talk for the Christian, for the Christian who has been fooled into thinking that the commands of the Lord are burdensome. Before we go to verse five, though, real quick, how do, how can you know if you are born of God? Verse one. How do you know? If you are trusting Jesus as your savior, right? If you've turned your life over to him, if you're trusting him as your savior, then you are born of God. So look at verse four for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You understand that God He's the one who created the world. He's all powerful. Wouldn't it be odd for for God to have something that came from him that was weak, that that couldn't overcome the world? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. What he's saying here is victory is assured. Whatever is born of God is not defeated by the world, but instead overcomes the world. When we say world, we're talking about the lust of the flesh, right? The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We saw that earlier. So here's the question. Are you born of God? If you are, you will overcome the world. But you say how? Well, verse the middle of verse four. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You overcome the world by faith that is trusting. Of course, it's not faith in faith. It's not faith for faith's sake. It's trusting in a person. Verse five. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who has faith in believes, trusts in Jesus. Right. But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. That is that he trusts him. He relies upon. He clings to quickly. And again, this is kind of just a precursor for next time. But. How are you going to overcome the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life? By clinging to Jesus the very same way that you were rescued from that in the first place. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Lord, I thank you for these believers, Lord, of yours. Thank you, Lord, if, even if, especially, Lord, if you've brought someone who doesn't know you or that you have taken great care for each one of us, Lord, to be here today. And you have something for us to learn and to apply. Lord, especially if there's someone who doesn't know you, I ask that you would uh, you'd break into their life, Lord, today. That they would, uh, they would respond to your call. Your word says that uh, you are near to us, Lord. And that you're calling to us. And that you desire, Lord, that not, none would perish, Lord, but that all should come to repentance, have eternal life. Pray, Lord, that you'd make yourself known. Manifest yourself, Lord, in this time of application now as well. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.